Once again, Ventures, and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is always brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this lady is a veritable superstar in the world of mental health and has helped countless people with her mental health through her tireless advocacy work, her book, and her positivity. She was there at the very start of Vent's journey and has been an ally, a friend, and a confidant with my own mental health for the past two years. That wonderful woman is Hope Virgo. Hope is one of the UK's best and most influential mental health advocates and is one of the most prominent advocates for awareness about eating disorders in the UK. She's a published author with her book Stand Tall Little Girl recently having been reissued and we'll put a link to where you can purchase it in the pod description. She's also founder of the public campaign Dump the Scales, which is a campaign to ensure that nobody's turned away from treatment for eating disorders purely because of their weight. At the time of recording of the, of the um, petition, it's garnered over 95,000 signatures. So we'll also give a link to where you can sign it yourself in the description of the pod. Hope, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. I'm so pleased we could finally do this. Yes, First of all, too. how are you? Yeah, no, I'm good, thank you. I'm quite tired today, but apart from that, I'm good. A, a lot of tireless day of uh, campaigning yesterday, yeah, was it? But yeah, but it's always fun, yeah. so can't complain. Um, for the listeners, like many mental health advocates in the community, we, we connected online and have actually known each other for, for well over two years now, but this is the first time we've actually met in person. Yeah. It feels a bit weird, actually. Yes, yeah, so I feel like of... I know you really well. <laughs> yeah, it's already, yeah. <laughs> have that effect on people. Um, right, so now we've got out that, that out of the way. Shall we get started? We can play games because we are so the first topic I wanted to kick off with you, Hope, is your mental health journey. So firstly, for the listeners who haven't read your book or know anything about eating disorders, let's just define what we mean by an eating disorder, the symptoms that one may exhibit when they have them and how it can affect you. Perfect. So an eating disorder, um, so there are various types of eating disorders. So bulimia, binge eating disorder, anorexia, and also eating disorders that just cannot be diagnosed because they're otherwise specified eating disorders. And with eating disorders, it's basically when you have a preoccupation with food as your coping mechanism. So my eating disorder was anorexia and the anorexia caused me to restrict a lot. I exercised a lot and it became a way of controlling and dampening my own emotions and my feelings. And for a lot of people with eating disorders, it does completely take over your life. Mm. I don't think people always realise that, but you pretty much worry constantly about food. And because you're really hungry all the time, you're constantly thinking about food as well, counting calories, thinking about when you can next miss a meal, and you get stuck in such a vicious cycle of it. Mm. And does it become quite obsessive then, would that be fair to say? Yeah, no, it does. And I think sometimes when you're in recovery, it's that obsessive side of thing that gets harder to break. So stopping weighing yourself, stopping calorie counting, because it comes kind of second nature to you. Mm. And you panic if you're not doing that controlling part of it. Mm. And... So the listeners know, like, what are the sort of subtle differences between the different forms of eating disorders as well? Because someone might say, you know, I know someone who has anorexia, but they might, they might actually have bulimia, but they don't know. They just sort of see them in a sort of um, amalgamated way. Is that, is yeah, that right no, to that say? Yeah, that makes sense. So with anorexia, normally you can identify it by someone um, gradually losing weight over time or restricting, kind of cutting out food. 
not being able to go out for meals maybe or exercising all the time and that's when the food really starts to dominate their life with bulimia it's more when someone binges and then they purge after they've binged um and what um, does purge mean for people um, who don't know so making themselves sick okay. afterwards and some people can have a mixture of anorexia and bulimia which is when you um, have to eat anything because you're trying to put on weight or trying to get in recovery and straight after that you will then make yourself sick to try mm. and manage it and then there's other types of eating disorders which are more linked to kind of general disordered eating and I think those in effect are quite scary and quite dangerous because I think in society generally we live where there in this society where there is a, such a focus on diet culture such a focus mm. on clean mm. eating mm. and cutting out and being a vegan and whatever it might be and actually for a lot of those people it's actually kind of hiding an eating disorder that they that might sort have lived of high with, powered living and yeah, that sort of yeah yeah that they've yeah. lived with for so long and it's really I think I find that the most frustrating because there's a lot of people who cut out stuff have an eating disorder but then are functioning at such a high level mm. that no one actually realises that anything's going on mm. and I think it's really important to also say that um, you know girls and boys can both be affected yeah. by eating disorders as well but it's because I think some people think that they have this assumption that it might be a condition purely confined to girls yeah. but why do you think that that sort of I don't know, that mindset has been developed over the years, do you think? I think it probably was the case in the past, potentially, where people were so fixated on females and it being an issue for women. But I think over the last kind of decade or so, because men are more preoccupied with thinking about their appearance and become, I guess they face more pressures with that. But then they also then having, combining that with trying to be the breadwinner and all of that mm. sort of stuff actually it means that they really really struggle with their bodies and mm. struggle to talk about it but then it's harder for a male to get diagnosed mm. because it's not as normal for someone with an e a male to have an eating disorder and also mm. there's certain signs that you look out for in a girl like your period stopping but obviously a man doesn't have periods so then you can't even look out for that as a stopping point as well mm. and for the, from the the male um the men that you've spoken to who who've had who have or had d eating disorders what are the signs that you've seen in them or what the signs that they've said to you that they exhibit um to people or red flags so to speak about their eating disorders so for them for some of them it's about um going to the gym all the time and trying to bulk up mm. um and actually I've it's been, true for a lot of boys to yeah say, it <laughs> including is. myself but i think sometimes it's when it goes too far so i've been doing a lot of work with some rugby clubs um in the midlands and a lot of those boys in the rugby clubs, they're so obsessed with working out mm. that if they don't go for one day or they don't go more than twice a day, they get really panicked and really edgy about it. And it's about identifying that as a completely disordered behaviour mm. and actually realising that actually that is too much. Mm. Um, I think as well, general things like feeling really tired all the time, feeling constantly distracted at mealtimes, mm. and also just boys that are so fixated on being a certain size or a certain weight. Big, muscular, yeah. but also shredded. Yeah, yeah. and it's that's a really a, big a problem. dangerous combination. It's a really big problem amongst men right now. I, I'm, you know, I started going to the gym just after uni, and it was really good for my mental health, really yeah. good for my self-esteem, you know, routine was really good for me. But I'm also conscious of, you know, the fact that I maybe sometimes overdo it. Maybe I sometimes get fixated on, you know, lifting a certain weight. However, I'm very much aware that, you know, I've never been tempted to use steroids. Yeah. And I completely, you know, I, I've got no inclination to do it. But I also know that a lot of men secretly or overtly, you can always tell normally, yeah. um, <laughs> use steroids um sometimes to an extreme degree sometimes to a, to a small degree have you seen the use of steroids become not maybe commonplace but have you seen it become a 
a feature of men who are experiencing eating disorders? Yeah, no, definitely. And it has just become more normalised. Mm. So people nowadays, particularly gym, gym people... Yeah, gym like, buddies, yeah. ...take a lot yeah. of protein and you have shakes and everything... And it's like when that starts to replace an actual meal and it's something you have to have all the time, that's when it becomes really dangerous and really risky. And also, I guess, thinking about why they're working out, like whether you're doing it to punish yourself or whether you're doing it because you actually want to and you enjoy it. Or for girls. Yeah, or for girls. (laughs) (laughs) It's normally the case. (laughs) Working out, I guess, like, yeah, the route behind it. And then actually then you can identify if it's an issue or not. Mm. Um, let's go right back to the beginning now. So your so your early childhood and teenage years. You know what were they like, and and how did would you say that the development of your eating disorder began? If you could pinpoint a point. So I think so for me, growing up was really difficult. Mm. Um, so I came from a very big family. Well, not that big, but one of five, which I thought okay, was one of four. Big. So yeah, oh, nice, yeah, yeah. So big families, and it was all it was really fun a lot of the time. But it was also really difficult. I think I was the middle child, which I struggled with. Same. And it then adds that added pressure, doesn't it? Where actually you're kind of like the mediator, you're the fixer. And I found that really challenging at times. And it meant that my way of coping with it was to try and kind of switch off my emotions. Mm. And my mum noticed this from a really like young age. And I did do bits of therapy when I was nine. But I just thought it was, was quite a bit young, weird. very young. Was it was it's it ridiculous. CBT or was it sort of like just someone just talking to you and having a chat? They got me to do like draw pictures okay. and write stuff down on pieces of paper. That wouldn't have worked for me because I'm absolutely horrendous at drawing. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> yeah. It was a complete and utter waste of time. Just stick people everywhere. The whole thing was it kind of like yeah. Looking back, I just think, and actually, weirdly, my dad never knew that I went. Mm. Oh, um, did he not? Oh, wow. No, okay. So I think it was one of those things. My mum was trying to do something. I guess back then it was even more stigmatising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then. I kind of carried on, I guess, to the end of junior school and was kind of all right, like just not that happy a lot of the time, but kind of just functioned and was fine. And when I got to secondary school, things got harder for me. So I had real issues with my older brother. So he was mm. very angry a lot of the time. And I took it kind of as my responsibility to go and sit with him in A&E when he'd mm. been in fights or when mm. he ran away, go and find him. And that was around the same time I was getting sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And kind of a combination of those two things meant that I didn't know how to process emotion in a healthy way and I wanted to pretty much do anything I could to switch off all of that emotional stuff and that is when I just kind of stopped eating mm. and it did happen very slowly but the more I kind of stopped eating and the more exercise I did I got this complete and utter sense of kind of achievement and validation out mm. of it mm. and I liked the fact that it removed me from the realities of actually really growing up and having to think about all of these things that really bothered me and really upset me so in in in, in, in any sense you know it seemed more of a distraction for you, but it became like an unhealthy distraction. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? No, definitely. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, potentially that's how it starts because mm. you it's kind of science, isn't it? Like you starve yourself and you do feel better. You do exercise, you feel better. But then it's when it turns into something that's really dangerous. And for me, it turned me into like this really difficult girl mm. where I argued a lot of the time when there was food around. I became very secretive and I rebelled a lot. And pretty much just went out constantly throughout my teen years so that I wasn't at home having Mm. to try and deal with everything. Um, At the time, were you conscious that, you know, this was something that was beginning to be a problem or did you see it as something that was maybe normal or something that's like some... I remember when I was going through my mental health issues, I was so alone and I was so, like, on my own when I was dealing with it that I felt like it was some weird, like, teenage rite of passage to have all these suicidal thoughts and all these other stuff. Did (laughs) Did it ever feel... 
like normal to you or did you or out of the ordinary or how did you sort of process it it back then so it felt really normal and became kind of part of me between the age of 13 and 16 Mm. um and then when I was 16 it was just after my GCSEs I went away with my school friends and we had this week of eating and drinking and going out and they were all really relaxed around food and Mm. at this point I wasn't at Mm. all and at that point I was kind of like there is something seriously weird about me like what is going on but I still couldn't really pinpoint it and really figure what it was because mm. whilst when I ate, I felt really awful, I actually knew that when I wasn't eating, everything just felt better and I couldn't get my head around whether this would be dangerous or mm. why this was even thought of as dangerous thing to do and dangerous behaviours. And did you, well, at the time, did you sort of see anyone or know anyone that might have been going through similar things or maybe even little things you could have talked to someone about, like, you know, friends... Um, or even just someone in your school maybe or was it was it did you very feel much like you were alone in sort of experiencing this so there was a girl at school actually um in the year above me oh, okay who had anorexia and we all used to talk about it all the time right but I never really like I never thought that I had it as well mm. so I never talked to her about it and no mm. one ever none of my school friends ever said oh that girl in the year above's got anorexia you've got it too kind of thing it was so obvious like, like she it had just, it yeah oh okay it was just like completely normal that right I was just the way I was I think and I think because people didn't know how to talk about it to me and I didn't really want to talk about it either. You just become even more isolated in it. Mm. And I think as well, I'm one of those people that I didn't let it... It didn't impact my schoolwork. It didn't impact my social life, really. Too high-functioning, yeah. basically. Yeah. So it just meant that actually it was probably harder for people to even realise. Mm. Especially at that age, you know. I don't yeah. think a, mo- a lot of... Back then, and we're talking 10 to 15 years ago, I don't think a lot of kids would be able to spot signs of mental health. Because no. my school was very much like... I used to get all the stigma in the world. Like, you know attention-seeking, people thinking you're selfish, saying the world doesn't roll around, all that sort of crap. So, like, I don't even know how a kid back then would have even been able to spot an eating disorder outside of the really obvious, like, catching someone being sick or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, that must have been a completely really horrible experience. But I guess you were high-functioning with it, so you could get through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Diagnosis is, is, of course, a big part of someone's life when they have an eating disorder um, and your negative experiences this, of this have, have really shaped the campaigning and advocacy yeah. work you've un, you undertake today and you've really turned it into a massive positive just just tell me about you know the diagnosis process that you went through and, and what happened with it um so the first time I got diagnosed was when I was 17 um and actually that that was a bit of a weird one. So they did diagnose with anorexia then, but at this point I was very underweight, so mm. I kind of fitted the mould that they wanted with anorexia. The stereotypes, I yeah. think. Yeah. But how they went about doing it was um, to weigh me every week, which didn't really work for me. And they also spent the first kind of three sessions just kind of scaring me and telling me all the really bad things about eating disorders and what was happening to my body and like kind of scare me into eating. So what kind of things were they telling you? That my hair would keep falling out. Oh my God. um, That I would eventually die, that I'd go into hospital, all of this stuff. But when you're in that mindset, whatever anyone says to you... You think it's going to be true. Yeah, it's an adult telling you it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so I kind of switched off at all of those points and just stopped listening in all my sessions and really struggled to actually accept that I had anything the matter with me. Mm. And I think that's probably what made it even worse the second time round when I relapsed a couple of years ago because at that point I knew what was happening and I knew what was wrong with me and I was mm. so willing to accept support to prevent me getting really unwell again. Mm. And that was when 
I went to the eating disorder service to try and get a diagnosis and to try and get some treatment. And I basically wanted like one hour of therapy for like six weeks just Mm. to kind of get me over this kind of blip and get me back on track. Um, But because I wasn't underweight, it was at that point they couldn't actually offer me anything. And it's that whole thing with eating disorders that we just are so fixated on the physical appearance of someone and the physical weight and everything that you don't actually take into account someone's mental state. And I think for me, it's the most frustrating thing because actually when you're in recovery, your weight goes up, but mentally it takes so much longer for that to catch up. But then everyone looks at you and thinks you look totally fine and Mm. you've done an amazing job in recovery. And you're like, well, actually, like I have, but I'm still not okay. Mm. And, you you know, you talked about that stigma there about people kind of being fixated on that on that physical appearance. Why is it really important that that we change that perception for society in order to make you know, to help people who, who have eating disorders live healthier lives and, and not have that stigma every day. Because it makes, it does stop people reaching out for support. And the thing with anorexia particularly is it's so competitive. So as soon as you get turned away from services for not being underweight, this competitive part of your brain kicks in. Oh, I see. So okay. then you then want to compete and be the best anorexic. And so you then oh, wow. try and That's lose a, wow, okay. all of that it's weight. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, and I think as well, like that, the whole thing with, the anorexia is that actually only out of all eating disorder cases across the country only eight percent of people have anorexia the Mm. rest of them are like bulimia binging disorder eating disorders that can't even be diagnosed which means that the clinicians and society are looking for this small eight percent but actually the rest of the people i think 82 92 my right. math is awful the rest of the 92 <laughs> percent something like that yeah. and i was like this is embarrassing um they will not ever be able to access proper support because they won't really ever get to that point when they're really underweight so they have to be in an extreme end of the spectrum in order to receive yeah. treatment and it's ridiculous that's, it's just frustrating that's really really eye-opening so what work have you been doing to try and change that i don't know threshold or change that perception that it's not just the eight percent it's the it's the 92 percent as well so i launched dump the scales this time last year um as i guess it was kind of twofold i wanted to do it because i wanted to raise awareness of eating disorders and to help people understand that eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes but then i also wanted to get proper kind of concrete long-term change through the government and through Mm. the nhs and so we launched the petition um which is calling on more gp training um something around communication to make sure that actually people aren't turned away for not being underweight and then also in the long term to introduce a standard where we can measure diagnosis and make sure people are getting the support because at the moment all of the stats that are out there are just so like they just don't represent the actual issues around eating disorders and what the support is needed so since launching it um it's been debated in parliament a number of times Mm. and i took it to downing street last april And then at the moment, I'm working locally with the hospital that turned me away from support to actually try and build some kind of resource and create some educational pieces to then go out to kind of schools and stuff. Because actually, Mm. I think whilst we have issues with funding at the moment and there's no like it is it's a joke, but we do have issues with funding, like it's a massive waiting list, everything. We need to look at actually what we can do to intervene at a much earlier point. And I think there are like schools and universities like they all have a role to play in that. And actually, it's about equipping other people to be able to deal with this mental health crisis as well as the hospitals. Mm. We're going to talk a bit more about the um, the Dump the Scales um, petition campaign a bit later on in the pod. But take us back to your sort of young adult years now. Um, who is the hope we meet at this point? Is she someone who has perhaps lost control of reading disorder? Is she someone more in control of it? Or at least perhaps a little bit more aware of, of what this condition is and what's going on with her? 
so I think where I'm at at the moment with it is I'm in, I'm in a very good place with it. Mm. Um, so over the summer, I've been doing a lot of trauma therapy and actually doing that trauma therapy has helped me to change my mindset around food and my body image and everything. I think I'm conscious that I don't know how long this good phase is going to last. Mm. It's always um, highs and lows, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it's kind of trying to like just manage it and also enjoy it. And I think that is something that's really important, actually, when you have a mental health problem, is when you have the good moments, it's about not worrying about how long they're going to last, but actually just being mindful of what the kind of triggers might be or the stuff to look out for, but actually really trying to enjoy how you're feeling at that point. Mm. Um, so, yeah, right now I'm in a good space, I think. Mm. That's yeah, good. Which is really nice, actually, because it's been, I think... When I left hospital when I was 18, I kind of was all right. And then, like, I had this amazing kind of six years. And then I relapsed. And then it's been kind of steadily getting better since I relapsed. Mm. Um, so it's quite nice to kind of be back in a really So the roller coaster is back on the right, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's difficult with mental health problems. Mm. You do, like, recovery is not straightforward. It's not a straight it's line. It's not a straight line, no. And it's, it's so frustrating because there will be points where you're just, like, whizzing around constantly in, like, a rut but then when you break that right, it's then like, this is good, I'm now on the next level. And mm. I think that's okay. I think it's okay to plateau as long as you're constantly working mm. to the next point. You mentioned it, you know, a little bit there, but, you know, a big part of your journey was when you were eventually hospitalised hospitalized because of your anorexia. Um, at this point, am I saying you were you were um, an adult when this happened? So you were 18, did you say? No, I was 17. You 17, yeah. Um, so you were young, like, pre- young adult, like yeah. teenager, young adult? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know... If you could, just talk me a bit through how it happened and the events that transpired around it, sort of pre, you know, middle and post, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So, so when I, after my, after my GCSEs, we had like this summer off and straight after that summer, I started sixth form. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I started sixth form, my school got in touch with my mum mm-hmm. um, and I had to go to my GP. And then after kind of a couple of sessions with my GP, where they basically just did loads of blood tests and things, um... I got referred to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services. So I went to CAMS as an outpatient for six months um, and had appointments every week, kind of weigh-ins and the odd bit of therapy. Um, the therapy didn't really work for me in CAMS. I, okay. didn't, I didn't really like my therapist. Um, he was like this young, kind of like hippie guy. And I don't have anything against hippies, <laughs> but I just did not connect with him in the slightest. That's fair enough. Yeah, and you know, like, when you're just like... And had I been a bit older, I probably would have been like, I really don't like him. Mm. But I didn't feel at that point. You weren't also, getting the vibes. No, no, and also I just didn't really care because I think I wanted... I didn't want to share anything with him. And it just kind of was like, I'd just go and sit there for an hour every week, won't really say anything. Mm. Um, and then six months after I'd started at CAMS, the therapy just hadn't worked. Nothing had worked for me. And this was at my kind of my worst I was really unhappy and I didn't know what to do I felt completely out of control and most evenings leading up to my hospital admission I would just sit in bed and just be like hating my brain and just wishing for that part of my brain that was kind of controlling me to just stop controlling Mm. me and to just leave me alone for a little bit but the reality is it just didn't work like that and Mm. I remember those evenings where I'd sit in bed and be like right tomorrow morning I'm just going to start eating something's just going to click but it just never did and I'd always be like if I just lose a little bit more weight if I just like eat a little bit less and I'll feel really happy Mm. but it never worked like that and I created kind of like this vicious cycle of just complete self-hatred and just feeling so isolated and just not talking about it with anyone like not even knowing how to talk about it Mm. um and then after six months there, um, I then got admitted to hospital. Um, but at this point, I still was not ready to really accept that I had anything the matter with me. So spent the first three days in, like, complete denial about it, mm. kind of 
lying a lot, shouting a lot. Um, I hated everyone I was in hospital with. I thought that I wasn't going to be friends with anyone. And I was also just really angry. Like, I was 17. All my friends were in their final year at school. And I was just stuck in this hospital, sharing a room with, like, 11 and 12-year-olds. And mm. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't have anything in common with them, apart from the fact we all have eating disorders. Mm. And I really, really struggled with it. Mm. Um, luckily, on that Friday night, I did this exercise... Um, where they got me to draw how I imagined myself and then they traced around me on that same bit of paper and it like basically had this whole mental shift in my head because the images were so different that I became kind of I guess I realized that something was really wrong with me in Mm. the way that I viewed myself Um, and after that I did gradually begin to start eating and began to engage in the therapy and began to talk a little bit more about how I actually felt Mm. and a big thing for me was just removing all of the emotion from the meal time and actually having the space after meal times to talk about how I really felt about stuff and to have that place to do that where I wasn't trying to fix my family, trying to fix all these the people situations. Pleasing. I think that's something yeah. we all have, I think. It's awful, have isn't it? Issues. Like, yeah. you feel like you have to earn someone's yeah. love. The anxiety of yeah. it, like falling out with someone, immediately wanting to like do everything to yeah. like repair oh, it ridiculous. and sometimes you just can't and then you get like hung up on if they don't accept an apology or and you just be like you just yeah. you just want everything to it's like closure you want closure on everything yeah you I do, feel like yeah, yeah. and you um, just get in that mm. cycle of blaming yourself for everything don't you mm. um you talked a little bit there about how you wanted to remove this this part of your brain sometimes i feel and i, I feel this that like i can see not maybe my anxiety, but I can see the depression inside my own head as like a cancer. If yeah. that makes sense, did you did you have that sort of similar thing where you kind of you you can you can feel like a physical presence of it in your head and you wanted to remove? Yeah, it basically. and interestingly, mine's moved from being near the front of my head to like more just like at the bottom at the back. Oh, okay. So yeah. mine's still like here at the top yeah, of my so forehead. I'm pointing shifts. to the listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm touching my head a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, mine has shifted, which is a really good thing. Um, and I think sometimes like you can feel it kind of trying to niggle forward again, mm. but then I have to stay on top of it. Mm. And I think some, actually when I like sometimes when I have a really bad day, I sometimes think it'd be amazing if there was some kind of treatment where you could like get a vacuum and just like suck that. Or like in Harry Potter, they get the wand yeah. and he removes the memories and he just takes <laughs> it out like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But obviously that doesn't work. No, <laughs> um, you know these events have obviously had like a long-lasting impact on your life. You know, at the time, did you did you have those adequate support networks in place? You know, friends or family around you to help you through it, and and if so, like how did they support you? Because obviously you said that your dad didn't know. Um, that you were going through therapy when you were younger, but did he know, like, when you were going through this point? I mean, obviously, it would have been quite obvious if he didn't. Yeah, yeah. a bit weird. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, so it was a weird one, I think. So my family, they try, they tried to support, but I think they were so fixated on trying to fix the issue mm-hmm. that instead of actually kind of taking time out and instead of spending time listening to me and things it just all became this focus around food mm-hmm. and every meal time was then really stressful my mum bless her she did she did her best and I think she did the best in a situation where she had no idea what an eating disorder was when it began that generation doesn't yeah do and she no. did so much research she probably brought every single book under the sun to try and work it out but actually it just wasn't it just wasn't working and me and my mum had a very difficult relationship at that point um my dad he was quite unengaged with the mm. whole thing so my dad's my dad whilst finds mental health stuff very embarrassing and I think he does still struggle with what I do now he's like a lawyer in the city mm. which I don't know why that kind of justifies it but it sometimes feels like it does because it is that generation in that kind of sector mm. 
But when I was in hospital, he did come and see me a lot, but he didn't really understand it. Do you mean like he felt embarrassed, like that he he didn't want to talk about it, or did he try and compartmentalise it, or was it sort of that stigma of like I don't even know the right way to say that to be honest. Yeah, I think yeah. he tried to like box it up. Yeah, sure. And like he'd come and see me and get quite emotional. And then it would just go, and he'd box it up. And, and he'd be like, straight, yeah. now I'm going to or work, and then the work me, mindset, yeah. Yeah, or he'd bring me, like, chocolate, as if, like, I'd start eating it. Mm. And, like, he, like, and I think that was what was the hardest thing for him, actually, was kind of watching me just get really, really unwell mm. and him not being able to fix it. And I think mm. for men, that men try and fix things. Like, and sometimes we don't want to be fixed. We just want someone there for us. Mm. Um, when I relapsed, people were much better with me, actually. And I think part of that is that people understood it more so and they knew what I needed. They knew that I didn't want to be fixed. I didn't want sympathy. I just wanted kind of like a bit of a plan of action and some support when I needed it. Mm. And I think I'm now much better. I know I'm much better actually at when I, there are things that I need and I know what I need. So when I relapsed, I knew that I needed my mum to text me X amount of times a day to check in with me. I needed like someone to check I wasn't exercising too much. But by that point, I think I knew my brain so well mm. that it made it much easier. You know, when you look back, do you feel like you can pinpoint a reason as to why that relapse happened? Or do you think it was something that that just comes with the highs and lows of, of living with an eating disorder? So for me, it was my grandma passed away. Oh, OK. Yeah, and I really struggled with the grief around it. Mm. And I went back to that kind of fixing everyone else thing, mm. so trying to be really strong for everyone else. And didn't really feel like I could talk about how I was actually feeling and share that. Mm. So I had to find my own coping mechanisms. So you relapsed into the psychological mindset of fixing things as well as... Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never thought of it like yeah. that. Yeah, I did exactly that. So it was it was very much the trauma and the grief that was yeah. that was associated with losing your grandma, which made you... Which, we, which caused that relapse. Again. Okay. And I think sometimes we do, and I think... And a massive generalisation, but I do think a lot of mental health people, people who've had mental health problems, we have so much empathy mm. that then we don't want to always let our own vulnerable side out when we're 100%, struggling. So yeah. we find it easier to kind of put on that brave face. And I think for me, something I do struggle with is that actually my my family have seen me at my absolute worst mm. mentally. And so it's now sometimes harder to make them understand if I'm having a bad day now. Because 100%. They see me functioning and keeping going. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I feel like that. what you've just said there is really, is really powerful because when I was... I've spoken about my story, you know, really openly. and But now I've got to that stage where I'm sort of... I've accepted that I'm in a position of responsibility. I'm accepted I'm an advocate, even though I didn't really want to be at the start. But now I almost feel like I have more responsibility to be stronger for other people if that makes yeah. sense and not and if I am struggling at, at a specific time I won't like I don't normally like tweet about it or like you know do any posts about it like yeah. I'll I'll say like you know I'll write like mental health tweets and stuff how we can be better but I'm I'm, I'm almost like more reluctant now to yeah. sort of say on Twitter or Facebook or wherever like I'm having a really shit period right now and I'm going through like a down period. Did you yeah. do you ever feel like that as well? Yeah, so mine I did feel like that all of last year actually. And then something kind of clicked over the summer mm. and I was actually like this is ridiculous like I campaign on this and yet there's still so much stigma mm. and I think there's another layer of stigma within mental health campaigners in that actually we don't feel like we can be honest or as honest yeah, as or perhaps as honest. we'd like to be. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's okay to, but I think for me I struggle with it because 
I don't want people to think I can't do my job or I think people... That's a, that's a big thing yeah, for me, yeah. And people look up to you and yeah. like, don't they? So you don't want to let other people down. It's also a weird thing. That took me a long while to get used yeah. to. <laughs> I was like, no one should ever be looking up to me. No, and no, okay. I agree with that. <laughs> but I think sometimes you have to just accept, yeah. yeah. And I think in the past I have, yeah, I have started trying to share more honestly and for me it's a massive it's really important because I think if we start to do it then it helps other people to keep being honest mm. but also will help other campaigners as well to actually realise that we can still campaign but still struggle at mm. times it's that really weird like paradox paradox or like juxtaposition where we've talked about all this trauma and 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 you know really horrible experiences that we've had in the past but in the present yeah, it's, it's a bit like just a little down day yeah. it's we're, we're a little bit apprehensive about yeah. it yeah but um but I do think as well yeah. like sometimes what I have realized is that like sometimes when I have a down day that's okay mm. and it's like we all go through life having ups and downs and it's how we manage ourselves on those down days but actually realizing that it's just kind of a normal part of being a human that we are quite emotional people and I'm trying at the moment to not overthink it when I have a down day and actually be like I'm not relapsing I'm actually okay like I'm having a bit of a down day and it, I guess for me that helps me get through that day better mm. It's really important, I think, for, for those who live with eating disorders or addictions, maybe, that, that relapses can happen. Yeah. And it doesn't make you a failure. It doesn't make you worthless. It doesn't make you a bad person. Um, however, our minds, as we both know, can be very <laughs> negative places at times and make us think quite awful things. Um, did you ever feel like when this relapse happened, like you had this mindset of, okay, this has happened, but I know there's been periods of happiness and positivity, so I know I can get through this. Mm. Or was it, did you kind of get stuck in the mindset of relapsing and sort of having that negative mindset maybe? Yeah, I got completely stuck yeah. in that negative mindset. And I think part of that for me was that I had kind of lulled myself into this false sense of security, that I was never going to get sick again. Mm. And so I felt really weak when I relapsed and didn't want to talk about it with anyone. I felt frustrated at myself. I mm. felt like I'd let everyone in my family down but also let services down for that mm. year in hospital mm. and I was like I've just wasted all this NHS money in that hospital and I can't even manage my recovery mm. um I think yeah and I think then I did really struggle I did really struggle with that and admitting that I wasn't okay mm. and I think it is it is really difficult when you relapse because you do feel really bad about it and you feel guilty that you have relapsed and you feel guilty on everyone and I think yeah, a big thing for me was just being embarrassed about it and worrying what everyone was thinking and mm. not always knowing how to talk about it. Mm. I, th I completely agree because I think I, I know people who, who have, you know, have similar experiences to you and if there is that, they always, whenever they speak to me about it, they, they feel like there's this failure that has happened and that they've not betrayed the people who have helped them, but they've let them down. Yeah. And I think, you know... Maybe 10 years ago, when people who had addictions were, were constantly or maybe, you know, occasionally relapsing, there'd be this sort of mindset maybe of people who were around them going, well, you know, you keep letting us down, that at some point we're going to stop helping you and that sort of thing. But why yeah. is it important that we really persevere with people who, who relapse and, and try and make them, well, help them believe that it's not their fault and they, and they can get through it, basically? Because we can't... I don't think we can ever give up on someone. Mm. And I think, for me, it's like, actually... Look, I, when I relapsed back in 2016, it was, like... It was awful. I hated it. But now what I've realised now, kind of through having quite a rough year with things, 
actually now I know that I got through that I can get through anything and I think we have to have people around us who can be patient and who we can trust that they'll just be there for us and I know that's really difficult and I've got friends who get in that negative mindset and it's really difficult to break them out of that but if we just give up on everyone it's just it's just ridiculous Mm. like it's just not fair and not right Looking forward now, you know, how is your relationship with food and also your own um, eating disorder? You know, in your writing, you often anthropomorphise, got that right, bloody hell, that was a mouthful, <laughs> your eating disorder. Is, is there a particular reason for that? I don't know what that word means. It means like you you, you give it human qualities. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I'm supposed to be I can barely say it myself, to be like, fair. Um, it's a good word, though. Um, because that I guess for me that's what it was like it was mm. like having just someone constantly kind of with me all the time telling me what to do kind of telling me how I should feel being really nasty at times being really lovely at times um, and also in recovery it really helped me to have it like that because it meant that it was easier to have a conversation with it and easier to kind of push it away and I have been known in the past to actually get really really angry with it because mm. and I think by having it as someone with human kind of nature to it mm. it does make it easier to do that mm. um yeah and i do yeah and i think it is i think it's for me it's a helpful way to think about it as well mm. and when you talk when you talk to it is it inside your head or do you like speak to it out loud or is it a bit, a bit of both a or? bit of both so it is yeah. inside my head um if i'm really annoyed um i will shout at my head mm. um and that is shouting at that part of my brain but yeah so it is always there and for me I feel lucky because it's got less and less and now when I do have it I can shut it up pretty much straight away or I can analyse it so I get a lot of so it's part my illness isn't caused by bad body image but the body image stuff is wrapped up within having an eating disorder and when I have bad body image days now I can tend to analyse it much better and think like actually I feel really fat today because I like something's gone wrong at work or I'm stressed or something and you can kind of find a reason why you're feeling a certain way and I think for me I really need that evidence base behind it Mm. and actually having that factual thing and knowing knowing what's going on in my head Mm. if there's anyone listening to this pod who may be living with an eating disorder who might be worried that they have one that's been undiagnosed what message would you give them and what what tips or advice could you give them from your own experiences so I'd I think go to the GP as a starting point. So go to your GP and talk honestly to your GP about it. Quite often your GP won't be able to give you support or you'll get put on a massive waiting list, which is really frustrating. But actually just getting your name into services is really, really important and a really good step in the right direction. It's also about identifying people that you can talk to about it and people that you trust and you feel accountable to as well and people who just won't judge you and I do believe that actually where whether you've got an eating disorder or not we all need those kind of like five six people in our life that we can have that really honest conversation with and that honest discussion with and whether that's people you know in your family or your friends or even people online actually having that support network is vital and then also if you are really really struggling what I would say is it's it is recovery is unbelievably difficult and I never paint a happy clappy picture of that journey but what I do know is that when you get to that point where you are in recovery and getting to a much better place that it life can just be so much better and mm. you can really start to live your life mm. your name is for me basically an acronym for how people should view your that basically means that you like your name signifies how your life is oh, so yes. like your name is hope so therefore, I, like I don't think you mark that enough, to be honest. But um, 
what what message would you would you like people to take from your own journey and and what you've achieved despite the struggles that you've gone through no, that's a really big question yes. so i'll give you a second to answer it <laughs> i think never gi- never give up like never give up like I have days now when I just don't want to get out of bed or I feel really awful or I get out of bed, I go to the gym and I come back and I'm just like, this is ridiculous. I hate my brain, I hate my day. Mm. But actually, those hard days get less and less, which is amazing. But actually, if you get to the end of that day, then actually you've done another day, go to bed, start fresh again the next day. And it is about never giving up and just persevering with it. And a big thing for me at the moment is actually looking back over how far I've come in my recovery and not even work-related, but just with relation to kind of food and exercise and how I feel on a day-to-day basis. And actually realising that, like, I've made so much progress in my brain and actually you don't want to go back to square one and you don't want to have to start fresh by actually restricting again or letting something seep back into your head. We talked about Hope Virgo, the person, Now let's talk about Hope Virgo, the mental health advocate. So firstly, how did this journey to being an advocate for mental health itself and eating disorders more specifically start? So after I came through my relapse in 2016, I realised that there was this huge lack of understanding around eating disorders. Mm. The fact that people can't get support unless they're underweight. um, And also there wasn't like this, like a huge amount of kind of books out there around eating disorders and kind of sharing that kind of honest story of recovery. And so I decided that I wanted to write a book about it. Mm -hmm. And off the back of my book being published, I then began to do a lot more talks in schools and getting invited into places. And trying to juggle it with my full-time job was really, really difficult, as I'm sure a lot of people can probably relate to. Um, And so I decided after kind of eight months of doing it that I was just going to take the risk and quit my job it's a big step. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I did it around Christmas, which was probably the worst time to do it. <laughs> Genuinely the worst time. Yeah, you could I don't know why I did it. Um, I was just so desperate to leave. I was like, I just got to try. Um, and then since then, it's kind of just gone from there. So it began quite small, just doing schools work um, and little bits of corporate work. And then just kind of like seeing it grow quite a bit, which has been amazing to see, actually. But I think also just amazing to see more and more people nowadays actually starting to talk about eating disorders. Mm. There's not that many eating disorder advocates out there that I've encountered. You were the first that I encountered. And, like, for me, I'm sure that you get bombarded with messages, tweets, social media, DMs from probably young girls, probably young boys who are struggling with their own eating disorders. And we've spoken about it on the pod earlier, about how, you know, struggling to come to terms with this this idea of being an advocate... um, how do you cope with, with, with that, first of all, and the pressures and responsibility that comes with it? So I do... So I reply to pretty much everyone. Mm. Occasionally I miss people. You don't have to as well, by the way. No, it's I know really, you don't. Yeah. I think for me, it's... I think... So when I started it, I used to reply to everyone with really in-depth messages. Now I do tend to try and signpost people on, um, just because I'm conscious that I don't... I don't... Yeah, I guess I'm just conscious of my own well-being within it, and I can't fix everyone. Mm. And we're not counsellors. And we're not counsellors, exactly. Um, so I do try and reply to everyone. Um, if I don't, mostly people let it go. I have been really badly trolled over the last couple of months. It's really hard by just trolled by not people. replying to people, which is just ridiculous. Like, it really bothers me that, because I try really hard to not miss out. Of course out you do. Yeah, yeah, of course you do. Um, and I, I back you on that, by the way. Yeah. I, yeah. 
that it's I think really um, pissed me off that when I saw that on Twitter. <laughs> us, yeah. But I am, um, yeah. So I think in that sense, like, I am trying to get better at signposting people on. Um, and I think for me, it's about how I manage it for myself. Is just making sure that I have time away from work, which I am. I'm a massive workaholic, mm. and I am very bad at that. But it's about just making sure that maybe I go out for dinner once a week and don't take my phone mm. or. I book holidays and things like that. And I'm, I do love going away, so trying to book stuff like that actually to just keep me motivated, but also to just give me a bit of a kind of switch off time. And just unplug. Yeah, yeah, which is amazing. For those who aren't familiar with the reality of being a full-time public speaker, full-time public campaigner, um, tell the listeners a bit about you know your weekly schedule, the pressures of being self-employed, and perhaps some realities that people might not be aware of. So the, I think people think it's really easy and really... 100% people and, think it's easy and it's so not. Like, yeah, like my average week is kind of like travelling all over the country, mm-hmm. often on trains that are to like the middle of nowhere, really late at night, um, living off not that much sleep um, and then doing some media stuff every now and again. Um, and if you're called in to do media stuff, you just have to do it. Like, if you want to do it, obviously. So, for example, yesterday I did Sky in the morning and then went to Lincoln and then did a pre-record with Good Morning Britain at midnight. And it's, like, things like that that you just do. It's a lot. You don't realise that with yeah. the pre-records as well. I mean, yeah. And I think people do think it's... I think people think it's easy. I think quite often people message me, they're like, do you want to go for lunch today? I'm like, I'm working. And they're like, but you're just, like, working at home or you've just got one talk. I'm like, yeah, but there's so much stuff that comes around that. Your diary is massive. <laughs> and part of it is as well, I think, like, building a business, in effect. Like, that's mm. what we're doing. Like, mm. we're self-employed. We have to make money. We're building a business. And if you were building a business that wasn't a mental health business, people would accept the fact that you have to work a lot and work mm. all the time. But I think when it's mental health related, people don't always fully get actually the amount of time and hard work it takes. Mm. And I don't think people also get that it's not like you swanning about to far off flung places and no. exotic places speaking at oh, things. No. You know? I'd never you're go not like exotic. some you're not like a life coach <laughs> no. who gets paid twenty grand to speak in the Bahamas. No. You're you're speaking to people at the grassroots yeah people who are living with eating disorders to schools to you know public institutions it's not i don't think it's as glamorous as people might no it's definitely not and i think that's i think that's what i'm trying to get want to get across um at the moment with this but also just kind of generally to actually be like it's not it's not glamorous like i haven't yeah like it's very difficult to make time for yourself but also doing work like this you're not doing it to make money so actually that's another level of things that actually being self-employed brings that added mm. kind of issue with I think yeah I mean I, I juggle full-time job with then and um yeah it's just it is really hard to juggle it um we mentioned dump the scales campaign at the top of the pod but let's go into you know a bit more detail about it now so we've, we've said how it came about but it's a couple of years into its life cycle now um tell me about the progress you've made from it what notable people have championed it and, and where you see it at the moment and what it's achieved so I think, so the main, I was trying to think, so it made, the frustrating thing for me at the moment, if I'm honest, is we made huge progress up until kind of May, June time. Mm. And then with all of the political turmoil, it's kind of taken a bit of a backseater. Mm. And that I find so frustrating in itself because actually, yes, there are loads of other issues going on at the moment in Parliament, but actually mental health issues, eating disorders, they're not going anywhere. They're stuff that needs to still be tackled on that agenda. So if we go kind of before that, um, I have been, it's been really hard work. Um, I say I've also been very lucky with how it's come, but I have worked unbelievably hard on it. And um, so got it 
debated a couple of times in Parliament, which was amazing. And f- off the back of that, it then actually got eating disorders on the government's agenda, which is something that's happened maybe once before, years and years ago. But actually having it kind of front line now in government is amazing. Um, I've had a number of MPs support it. So I think of over 60 now signed a joint letter to go to the ex-minister for mental health, asking proper timescales and place and everything like that. And in that sense, that was a massive achievement for me, actually meeting with ministers and actually getting commitment to really tackle this. Um, And also just actually now working locally with hospitals and actually making them do that work on the ground, because I don't think that would have happened unless I'd had that governmental support. Mm. Um, So I think where I'm at at the moment is just working locally and hoping that actually when we launch something next February, it'll be amazing and off the back of that we can then look at doing something again more nationally with other hospitals as well but at the moment just making sure that I'm keeping up that campaigning so Mm. meeting with MPs and making sure they're still championing it even though there's all this other stuff going on. Mm. If this campaign sort of delivers on its objectives which I know you know we're not going to speculate on (laughs) because there's a lot of there's a few objectives on it um what future campaigns are you sort of devising at the moment that might follow it or what additional things have you got maybe in mind that could that could support it separately so i think there's a huge amount of stuff on training that needs to be done um across the nhs so working and looking at that at the moment um gps get two hours of eating disorder training throughout their whole medical degree that's an insanely small amount yeah which is just ridiculous (laughs) so trying to look actually at what we can do around that and actually with that it will be more it will be a long-term thing but it will be something that we have to get places like the gmc involved and other kind of royal colleges to make sure actually that does have that kind of long put, um, yeah, long term input into it. And I think just like a general wider piece on actually making sure people have some awareness around the fact that eating disorders are really serious mental illnesses and we are kind of in this like epidemic of eating disorders. And there are so many people who are just not diagnosed and trying to work out actually how we can get those people diagnosed, but then the support they really need. Mm. Finally, let's give the book a mention now. So it's called uh, Stand Tall Little Girl and it was just given a reissue. So firstly, um, for those who want to buy the book or might be thinking of buying the book who are listening to this, you know, what was the inspiration behind it and why did you want to write it? So I wanted to write it because I basically always wanted to write a book. And when I was in hospital, I did loads and loads of writing and it's a massive part of my well-being and how I manage myself. Very cathartic, so, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I write a lot. And when I have particularly difficult days or if I go to do a talk in a hospital and I need to kind of offload, I do tend to write everything down. Um, and even though I don't share a lot of that stuff, I think just generally journaling... It's good to have it, isn't it? Really journaling nice. is good, yeah. Um, and when I wrote the book, I realised, like, I wanted to raise awareness around eating disorders. I wanted to give people... I guess a story of recovery where actually yes there are ups and downs this is what it's really like but you can get to that end goal and you can recover Um, and my mum also writes three chapters in my book and actually for that sense it's really good for parents to actually I guess increase their understanding but also to help parents realise that actually what they're going through they're not alone in that and there'll be other people out there who are struggling as well Mm. what has been the because the book's been out for quite a while now hasn't it Um, what was the initial reaction to it and and what was the reaction to perhaps the reissue because people might not have seen it or been aware of it, but this campaign has brought awareness to that. And how do you think it's changed the conversation around eating disorders and mental health more generally, if you can pinpoint or if you've yeah. seen how it's changed it? Yeah, so it got a very good reaction at first, um, which I was quite surprised about, if I'm honest. So 
lots of reviews on Amazon, um, but also just people getting in touch who were in services struggling with food or people who had children who were struggling and actually just helping other people, which is what I really, really wanted out of it. Mm. I wanted it to just be a kind of a story that would benefit so many other people. Um, the second issue's had much more pick-up already. Um, I've seen quite a lot of that, which, which I think really must good. Be, yeah, yeah I think it's just because people know more who I am mm. which sounds really arrogant but when I first but it helps though <laughs> like I had no one knew who I was <laughs> yeah. and it was like I was just kind of doing it and was pretty chilled about it and I've definitely kind of been pushing it much more so this time um, and I think as also in the second edition like there is a lot more content in it and information about my campaign how I started it what I did and I think it's that sort of stuff that people will probably be interested in as well to actually mm. see that follow-on. That extra insight, yeah. the follow-on, yeah. And to just remind people that actually, whilst I do do that stuff, like I do talk about it in the book actually, about how whilst I do campaign, actually we have to realise we have good and bad days still. So trying to make that point as well. So I think whilst it will hopefully benefit people with eating disorders and their families, actually there'll be other mental health campaigners who it hopefully will help them also feel they Definitely can be more me, honest sure. as well. Yeah. So we talked about Hope Virgo the person, Hope Virgo the advocate. Now I wanted to quickly discuss something which has actively helped you with your mental health, which is exercise. Um, So in your case, running and cycling have been a massive help to your mental health. So first of all, tell me how you got into them and secondly, what effect they started having on your mental health. So my relationship with exercise has always been a bit of a funny one. Um, So when I was younger, I was very good at long distance running. Mm -hmm. I then got unwell and it became something that I was quite obsessed with and something that I had to do all the time. And when I went into hospital, I wasn't allowed to exercise for the first 10 months. And then my final two months, I was allowed to go for three 20 minute runs a week. And at that point, I realised the positive benefit of exercise on your mental health and actually realising that like realising that actually it does make you feel really good it releases all these endorphins and it isn't about punishing yourself or pushing yourself all the time but about actually just being like a safe and a positive thing to do and since then and since coming up it is something I do have to manage and I have to be careful I'm not exercising too much but what it does for me is just gives me that headspace to really think about things Mm. and to just switch off from everything going on around me and particularly when I'm out on my bike when I'm not like for some reason on my bike it feels different I think it's maybe because you're kind of a bit freer or maybe it doesn't hurt quite as much as when you're running all the time but when I'm on my bike I can't look at my phone I can't do anything you've got like to concentrate that. you've got yeah, to concentrate on the road yeah. and I think actually that then helps me just to be in that moment and just to be where I am and actually really really appreciate it mm. and was it something that you found improved your self esteem was it something that you found provided a distraction or maybe was a was an effective tool to combat your eating or eating disorder I think a bit of everything actually mm. so it definitely helps distract me and is a really po- real positive in that sense um, and it has increased my self esteem and my confidence generally just I've kind of realised that I'm kind of fueling in the right way I'm eating in the right way to exercise how I, however much I do and actually that does give me yeah that level of confidence back in myself um I think for me it was a game changer in my recovery so actually understanding how to exercise in a healthy way mm, and um, not overdo it like we said previously yeah. yeah or use it as a as a mask yeah, yeah. and I yeah. think for people with eating disorders and with all mental health problems and just generally like it is you have to be really mindful of what exercise you're doing and how much you're doing and whether you're pushing yourself too much and actually once we've kind of established that it makes it so much easier for us to then actually be okay with it in recovery mm. And why is it important, do you think, for people who, you know, are living with mental health conditions to, to find these hobbies or tools that can help them? 
because it gives you that purpose, another purpose in life, and it also helps to just distract you from your brain. Mm. I know when I've had really bad days, if I go and do a gym class or go even just go for a walk, actually just getting outside and being in the sunshine or being in the gym or whatever it is, it gives you that distraction and helps you to maybe just make things feel just a bit more, I guess, a bit more okay. Mm. And I think if you feel strong in yourself physically actually it helps you feel strong mentally because mm. it helps you feel a bit more like a fighter, a bit more like you mm. can stick with it and keep going. And when you're running, obviously you talked about how it makes it kind of maybe, what's the right word, um, smooths out that thought process. Yeah. Does it does it help you kind of, if you've got like an issue that you're dealing with that day or you've got something that was playing on your mind, when you're running, does it is it better for you to sort of combat those thoughts is it do you can you like solve things more more yeah, easily when you're running does. yeah it gives you it does give you that amazing headspace thing and actually when i'm running i do get a lot of ideas and kind of think through work stuff that i've been doing or think back over kind of work stuff so it's creative as well yeah it oh, okay. is and i think when for me when running becomes bad is when i use it and start to like n- like when i get stuck in like a negative thinking cycle in it but that doesn't tend to happen anymore, but it's something that actually is a flag that actually I'm running for the wrong reasons. Mm. And obviously, you know, running is can take up a lot of your life. It can take up, you know, a very small part of your life. Have you ever thought about doing sort of long distance, you know, charity runs and marathons, yeah. anything like that? Or is it something, it's more just like a hobby and you're just so going to stick to that? So I have done some marathons, um, but at the moment it's more just a hobby mm. that I like to do. I think, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, constantly be entering races and challenges mm. I think because I don't think that's healthy for me um, but I would like to at some point do some more kind of races and things like that definitely but I won't change for you my love right till the end. so our final topic of conversation Hope and it's one that I have with all my special guests is a general natter about our mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment pal? right this second mm. I think it's pretty Today? good. I'm like, yeah. Over the last few months, whatever you want to, whatever so milestone you want to use. Um, the last couple of months um, have been hard in places, but feeling much better at the moment about everything. Um, yeah, so actually, yeah, pretty good, I think. Excellent. And we've obviously spoken about it a lot, but, you know, if you could say, can you state what mental health conditions do you live with? Uh, so I live with anorexia. Excellent. And... When you had that first conversation about your mental health, who was it with and what was the impact that it had on you? So it was with a, with a teacher at school. Um, so it was after um, I'd been in the sick bay at school for a little bit and um, just for like a couple of, I don't know, like an hour or something. And she came in to see me and we didn't talk about my mental health, so to speak, but we talked about the fact that she'd had depression. Oh, wow, that's quite a big thing for a teacher to open up to. To tell yeah. me about it, I think, in the hope that... I would then open up. Mm. I didn't really open up with her, um, but she did say at the end of the conversation, I know something's not quite right with you. Mm. Um, yeah. And that was, I mean, that's pretty amazing for a teacher to do. Yeah, it was. I think, like, and to I put, do those, think put herself out there. Yeah, I think it was really brave. And mm. I didn't tell anyone about it at the time. Um, and I think she probably knew I wouldn't. But yeah, really, really brave mm. of her. And, and what things do you find in life that, that sort of trigger your mental health or your eating disorder? So things people might say, sounds, sensations, etc. So things that people say is when people become preoccupied with dieting or commenting mm. on what people are eating mm. or when people tell me I look really healthy. Because um, whilst I think people are saying these comments or talking about dieting in a harmless way for themselves, actually it can be quite triggering people who've been through an eating disorder. 
And something that I think we all have to navigate, whether you've had an eating disorder or not, is that whole diet culture and everything to do with that is really, really difficult. And there's this pressure to be a certain size and a certain shape. And if you're that certain size, you'll be really happy when actually it's not about that. Mm. Um, So I find that stuff quite difficult at times. I'm getting better at switching off from it and actually just being kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. But in the past, it has been quite difficult. And we've we've spoken about it previously, but you know what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health which ones have you found that work which ones have you found that haven't um so ones that really work for me so exercise is a big one um doing therapy so i still do therapy which and is, is that really, cognitive really helpful. is that cognitive behavioral therapy or no is it... it's um talking therapy just talking therapy yeah. so, okay um, which i really really enjoy actually most of the time um that really helps me having people around me that i trust and i can be really honest with is a really big one for me and something that I think I've developed my support network over the last kind of 10 years, Mm. 11 years since coming out of hospital. Um, And then also knowing what my triggers are and knowing how I'm going to cope with different situations if I am going to find them triggering. Mm. And when you're struggling with your mental health, who do you, is anyone specifically that you reach to for support? Um, Is it a particular, like one specific, you know, family member, one specific friend, you know, who do you sort sort of say, if you are really struggling, who do you check in with and say like, I am really struggling, can we do this or can we do why? Yeah, so I think it depends on what the issue is um, and what else is going on for people. Mm. So if, so probably tends to be like my mum, my boyfriend or my younger sister, but then kind of those three rotating depending on who else, whether someone else has got something going on at that point or whatever. Mm. And I'm always probably overly mindful of kind of burdening people with things. So find it quite difficult sometimes to tell people that I'm not okay because of that reason. Mm. Um, but when I do it, I always, yeah, I make sure that actually there's a follow-up plan in place mm. with whoever I've told. Toxic masculinity is something that we talk a lot about on this pod, Hope. And I really wanted to sort of talk a little bit about how you've seen it um, manifest itself with boys who have eating disorders. Yeah. Could you give any examples of where you've seen that stigma Um, attach itself to men or boys when it comes to eating disorders itself? So I think the main one is actually linking it to people who go to the gym a lot and that obsession to work out and be a certain size and trying to be, yeah, the the perfect male body for seeing and actually criticising other people who aren't like that. Mm. And that, I I think, is a massive issue in itself. But also then the other extreme when you have men who maybe don't have eating disorders but are really, really nasty or kind of speaking negatively about really, really skinny boys mm. who do have anorexia or do struggle with food. And actually that kind of stops both both those groups of people actually opening up and being really honest about how they're feeling. Mm. And why is it important that people are aware that, you know, this is a, this is a condition that, that doesn't discriminate when it comes to gender at all? Because we still live in a society where we think anorexia and eating disorders are a teenage white girl's illness, but mm. they're not. Any, they're not. Mm. Like they affect people of all different ages. They affect boys and girls, and they affect people from all different backgrounds. Mm. And if we don't talk about that and make sure that everyone knows that, it will stop so many people reaching out for that support. Mm. And the final thing I just wanted to touch on, which is something that was in the news recently, which was that news article about... Um, uh, a very uh, an elderly woman who was living with an eating disorder, yeah. and you were very um, you were commenting on it, about it on, on social media about you know why it's just as important that we get treatment for and prioritise you know women or men who who are elderly with eating disorders as we do with young people. Yeah. Why do you think in the past perhaps elderly people with eating disorders might have been forgotten or perhaps not as prioritised? Is it because of the image thing? Like you, you I think that stereotype yeah, as well? Yeah, so I think partly an image thing. I think also at that point people kind of just give up. 
mm. on that individual. So my grandma had anorexia and died from it when she was in her 80s. Mm. And when she died, she was in hospital, but she wasn't in an eating disorder service. She wasn't getting any mental health support. And the staff just left kind of food or like on her bedside. Um, and she wasn't going to eat any of it, but they weren't offering anything to kind of help her do that. Mm. And I think at that point they had just given up on her and they didn't see the point of trying to kind of make her feel better or make her recover from her eating disorder because there were younger people who maybe they thought needed it more. And I think treatments are so tailored with eating disorders to younger people that we quite often don't think about older generations in it. And they're at a different, completely different stage of life than other people. And we have to make sure we're tailoring treatments accordingly to it. Mm. Why do you think sort of boys and men, you know, throughout history and up until recently have really struggled to show their emotions to express vulnerability and and be open not just with each other but but you know to everyone i mean i i've always found that with boys and it's including myself on this um when i was younger i found it really helpful and more beneficial to talk to a girl than it did with a boy mm. do you could you point pinpoint any reason for that or do you have you found you know any particular reason why perhaps men throughout history have not have not been as yeah, open basically. I think it's that I think it's the whole stigma that men don't have emotions men shouldn't feel things men need to make the money and mm. just get on with life mm. and it is a, it is a massive issue today that men do still feel like that so much and I come across so many um men of all different ages who have either spent their whole lives trying to hide something or are currently trying to hide something because they don't even know where to start with it or don't even know how to have that conversation. Mm. And I think it's that, it is that added pressure that they just do not want to talk about anything. Mm. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Hope, thank you so much for being my special guest on this edition's pod and for checking in with me. I'm so pleased we finally got to meet in person. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Um, for anyone who wants to follow you on social media, who wants to keep up to date with your work, where can they find you? Um, so on Twitter, um, just Hope Virgo. Um, on Instagram, it's Hope Virgo and then an underscore. Um, and then Facebook, Hope Virgo author. Um, and if there is anything that's come up for you guys today, do feel free to message me um, or message vent and kind of keep that conversation going excellent as always thank you to all the venters who tuned in remember if you've liked what you've heard please give this a share on all the, all the usual social media channels tell your friends or work colleagues about it or feeling really really generous write us a review on itunes we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember it's always okay it's to vent. Straight.